Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Thank you that you always know exactly what to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. We made it through the Ciclavia traffic. Round of applause for you. Um, it was a bit of a nightmare getting here, um, but we made it. We made it, and here we are. If we haven't met before, my name is Raul. I work here for Bread, and today I am continuing our series that we've been on. We've been in a series from the book of Luke called Jesus with People, and the Gospels tell us that God put on flesh, walked among us. He moved into the neighborhood and was with people. He interacted with all sorts of people, with men and women, with servants and masters, with the poor and the wealthy, with the religious and the demonized, those with political power and those with no power. And where Jesus wa- where people were, that's where Jesus was because he loved people. And last week Ed talked about Jesus being with the sick. And today I'm putting a bit of a cultural spin on this. Today I'm talking about Jesus with his gente. Can you all repeat that? Gente. Um, we have kind of just the sermons planned out in a weekly schedule. And uh, Jessica looked at the schedule and she goes, what is gente? And I thought, it's gente, Jessica. Um, and so if you see this online, you know now how to pronounce it, gente. Um, but gente literally means people in the general formal sense of the word. If you were to refer to your group, to your people, to those that you're close with, your family, uh, extended family, maybe even neighbors, you would say mi gente or my people. And there's a difference between gente and mi gente. The former are those with whom you may have a geographical proximity, but no relationships. And the latter are those with whom you have a shared experience in the same neighborhood and have fostered relationships. The former is detached and the latter is intimate. And I'm talking about Jesus with his gente. Jesus with his townspeople, with those who know him and are known by him. Jesus and his hometown folk. And in this story, we see something about both God and people. And we see that ultimately, his gente are those that are open to the Spirit. And so here is Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. Does Jesus return to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside? And he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue 
as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote, surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. We were on vacation about two weeks ago. We went down to Puerto Vallarta, which is on the west coast of Mexico, and we went with some friends of ours. We had this whole vision planned. We were going to lay by the pool, ride ATVs, and take a boat out, and this week was going to be just what we needed, and we were thrilled. So we get on the plane, arrive in Mexico, and settle into vacation mode. It had been sunny, the weather was hot and humid, it was exactly what you wanted it to be, And while we were hanging out by the pool, we decided, okay, let's set a date to go out and snorkel. Let's rent a boat and get some snorkeling in. And so I reached out to one of the locals who organizes boat rentals. Her name was Ava. Ava sent me pictures of the boat. It looked like a small yacht. And the price was decent, so we went with it. And we arrive at the marina to meet Ava, and the boat was not there. And so we're looking around, thinking, okay, did we just get bamboozled? And then there in the distance, there's a boat like ours that didn't quite match the description. And as it gets closer, the details become a bit more obvious. And we're thinking, God, please don't let this be our boat. It's got chipped paint, there's loose fishing gear, there's a pile of trash in one corner, and, and as it docks, Ava turns to us and she says, hey, here's your wonderful boat. And we think, 
okay, by this point, we've waited almost an hour. We just want to get this over with. So we get on the boat, assuming it will all get better. And the boat heads out, and as it goes out to sea, we get settled, and it went from being sunny and warm to cloudy and cold, and it begins to downpour. And we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. And so we scramble down the hatches, get into the boat, and immediately regret the whole thing. I mean, there was people crying, people regretting. Like, why did we trust Raul with this? (laughs) Who thought to let him be in charge? And so we were cold and wet and not snorkeling. And in that moment, all of our expectations, our vision for what this could have been, was suddenly gone. And I imagine this may be how Jesus' listeners felt when their expectations of Jesus were suddenly gone. They expected a Jesus who'd agree, a Jesus who would do what they wanted, a Jesus who would do all the miracles at their word, but instead they got a Jesus who who doesn't fit neatly into their design. He doesn't meet their claims and demands. And this scene opens up with Jesus arriving in his hometown after being tempted in the wilderness. He returns to Nazareth, where he was brought up. He was a small-town kid. My wife is from a rural town in Michigan, and believe me when I say it is as small as it gets. You want to know how small? Her neighbors are Amish. Her town just got its first streetlight about 10 years ago. And in the town of about 800, everybody knows everyone because it's easy in a place like that to be known. And when something happens, news of the good, the bad, and the ugly gets out. News travels fast, and it was the case in Jesus' time as well. And his hentha had heard that Jesus was back in town, And he's invited to guest teach at his synagogue. And being a faithful Jew, he participated in the local synagogue, which met on Saturdays. And the service leader uh, would have called the guest teacher up to read the passage at the front. And so Jesus gets up and he begins to read Isaiah 61. And for his hearers, this would have been a callback to all the promises that they had grown up hearing about God. Promises that God had made to their people. Promises to make home their own again. Promises to make right every wrong. Promises to restore them fully. And promises to destroy their enemies. This passage of comfort and hope would have been exactly what they wanted to hear. This was their promise. This was their claim. And it happens in Nazareth. Nazareth, which means lookout or watchtower, was a small town on the outskirts of the district capital. It's kind of like Barstow or Baker. And its people were farmers, and they held traditional values and were devoted worshipers. And metaphorically speaking, you could say that they were people on the lookout for God. They were like watch people, making sure that the community remained faithful, making sure that the community held to their beliefs and their traditions when everything seemed to be fighting against them. 
Because at the hands of the Romans, they were treated unfairly. And even at the hands of their own leaders, they were likely dismissed and perhaps even forgotten. And so these promises are what they looked out for. And as Jesus read, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe they were thinking, this is ours, Jesus. Do that here. Maybe they were thinking, it's about time. And the thing behind the idea of mi gente is that there's an obligation to the group. It would have been completely normal for Jesus' group, for Jesus' gente, to expect Jesus to do this kind of work there in Nazareth. But then as Jesus sits down to teach, he begins with, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this would have shaken things up because what Jesus is doing is announcing the kingdom and its activity as something that is happening now, but not in the way they expected and not in Nazareth, not among his gente. It needs to happen elsewhere first, among the outcasts, among the non-religious, among the poor and forgotten. What Jesus is speaking of here is grace for everyone. Not grace exclusively for his hometown as they had wished. And so that you can imagine there's a shift in the room. The people go from a a place of amazement and appreciation at Jesus' words to resentment and hostility. And I keep wondering why. Why is it that this, what was it that sent his hometown over the edge? And it's likely because Jesus didn't fit their expectations. His kingdom announcement didn't fit their design. They likely thought that just because Jesus was one of their own, that they could make claims of him. That because Jesus was a kid from down the street, they could make demands of him. And you and I are not immune from this. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of this sorting cube. Um, Have you seen one of these? Maybe you've played with these recently. Um, But the idea behind this is that we fit our objects into the cube. We are masters of our own cube. And we can be like the townspeople when we try to fit Jesus into our own design. When we try to fit Jesus into our own cube. And Christians are capable of trading the good news that is Jesus for a cheaper version that fits our own design. And I'm all for taking apart our faith that we grew up in and putting it back together. I've been there And bread will always be a place where you can do that as well. But if our newly put back together faith fits neatly with a political party, then we may not be well fit in the kingdom. If our faith fits, if our our measure of love and grace fits what is culturally acceptable, then we may not be well fit in the kingdom. And if our 
faith fits neatly and comfortably with the social structures that are standing, then we may not be well fit in the kingdom. And if our standard of success matches what Hollywood paints as success, then we may not be well fit into the kingdom. And so the question that this passage confronts us with, the question that Luke 4, this scene, confronts us with is, are we trying to fit God into our cube? Are we trying to fit God into our design? Are we trading Jesus for a cheaper version that fits our cube? For our anniversary one year, some friends of ours got us a cooking session with a private chef. And we were in this kitchen. It was Ashley, myself, and the chef, and no one else. And the chef wasn't cooking for us. We were cooking with him. And with some instruction and guidance, he walked us through cooking a coffee-seared steak. Can you imagine that? It was delicious, a steak with seared coffee on either end. Um, We made beignets. It was so good. And I was struck by how impactful it felt to be able to participate in making those meals. There was a shared sense of creating something together that isn't there when you're given a meal by somebody you can't see or speak to. Here was this, this moment of participation. And it's the kind of participation that the author of Luke invites us into. Luke writes with the intention of bringing you and I into his story. And the gospel isn't something that we fit into our design. Rather, we are fit into the gospel story. And by this, I mean that you and I aren't consumers of the perks of Christianity, we are participators who fit into the story that God is unfolding. In other words, God fits us into his design. We don't fit him into ours. We're the ones cooking with him. And what he's serving is tastier, it's healthier, it's more nutritious than anything that we can come up with. His story is good news for those who have feel like they have nothing left. It is one of redemption and renewal for those who feel that they are at the end of their rope. It's one of favor and goodness in a world of fear and competition. And his story is what you and I are made for. We fit into it not by anything that we do, but by the person of Jesus. His life and death and resurrection makes it possible for his unfolding story to collide with ours. And we lose out on his story when we try to make his fit ours instead of allowing ours to fit his. And have you ever tried to make something fit that just doesn't fit? Do you remember just how much energy you put into trying to make it fit? Do you recall the frustration? And so let us resist the temptation to fit God into our cube and instead allow him to fit us into his design and into his story. 
because this is ultimately his kitchen. And here's the good news. He's no Gordon Ramsay. He is abounding with love. He is rich in both mercy and justice. He is both powerful and gentle. And he is the one that we need. Allowing God to fit us into his design, into the story that he's unfolding, really just requires one thing. Surrender. And it wouldn't be inaccurate to say that most of us want to be in control, myself included. We are American, and that means that we don't surrender. The idea of surrender is repulsive. We will always put up a fight, and in some ways, in some cases, that's a good thing. But I'm reminded of this story. Have you ever seen this flag? Have any of you seen this flag or have maybe heard of this statement? It says, don't give up the ship. This flag was designed during the War of 1812 against the British. The second one, sorry guys. We won that one as well. Um, (laughs) But in the Great Lakes, there was a ferocious battle that was taking place between American and British ships. And... One ship, the U.S. frigate Chesapeake, was being attacked and eventually British troops boarded the frigate. And just imagine a scene from Pirates of the Caribbean or Master and Commander with Russell Crowe, if you remember that movie. But as the fighting intensified on deck, on the deck of the ship, the captain shouted, don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship. He shouted to his crew again, And again, and this eventually became a motto for the U.S. Navy, but what is shameful is the actual backstory. The ship was eventually lost, and its crew eventually surrendered, and it was later made known that the Chesapeake was ordered not to engage in the first place. James Lawrence, the captain, disobeyed a direct order that resulted in the total loss of his ship. And so the problem wasn't that the crew eventually surrendered to the British. It's that the captain first failed to surrender to his commanders. He failed to yield to his commanding officers. And I think the story behind this Navy's celebrated motto illustrates our tendency to be captains of our own ships. It illustrates our tendency to be captains of our own lives when in fact... The ship doesn't belong to us in the first place. If we're to be the people that God intends for you and I to be, if we're to be our God-filled selves, we have to surrender our cubes. We have to surrender the cheap designs that we have to the one who knows best. To be a Christian is to accept that no matter how skilled we may be, no matter what background we come from, how educated or wealthy we may be, it is insufficient compared to what Jesus can do. The Gospel of Mark and Matthew also record Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they record this story as well, but they give a bit more detail that Luke decides to leave out And this is Mark's take on it. 
It says that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And Matthew writes this, he says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. The cubes and designs that you and I have are symptoms of a much deeper reality. Disbelief or lack of faith. If we're to allow God to fit us into his story, then we have to admit that maybe our faith is lacking. That maybe our faith in God is a bit low. We have to admit that maybe we've believed things about God that aren't true. Maybe we've believed that God isn't good. Maybe we've believed that God is mediocre at best at directing our lives. But a prerequisite to surrender is belief. The more that we trust that Jesus is good, the more we can allow ourselves to surrender. The more we hear about the compassion of Jesus, the more we can surrender our shame. And the more we see the activity of God, like we heard about this morning, the more exciting surrender becomes. When we give up our claims, when we give up our demands, when we give up our cubes, we're actually allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives. We may have our cubes, our designs, because of fear. Fear that giving someone else control may actually hurt us. Afraid that we may not be looked out for. And we may be fearful because of what could happen. But what we hope for in crafting our cubes and crafting our designs is actually found in Jesus. What we think we can gain by crafting our cubes and putting our designs together is surpassed by Jesus. And he calls us not to fear, but to trust. To trust the undomesticated, the unclaimed, and the unrestricted Jesus. To trust that he's good for us, that he can do infinitely more than you and I can ask, think, or imagine. He's the one that comes to set free. He's the one that comes to redeem. It's much more than what our designs and cubes can secure for us. So let us be people of surrender because we believe that Jesus loves us. And perfect love casts out all fear. This passage in Luke opens up with the Spirit. The presence and the activity of the Spirit is central to Luke and Acts. It is really for the entire Bible, but Luke in particular, he, he wants us to know it. He makes it obvious. He paints it in red. And if we track Luke from the beginning to the end, we can see how present the activity of the Spirit is. Notice that in the account of, the, of Mary's conception, the presence of the Spirit is there. 
when Mary meets Martha, the baby in Martha's belly leaps because of the presence of the Spirit. When infant Jesus is presented at the temple, Simeon the elder and Anna the prophet begin to testify of, about Jesus by the Spirit. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And he returns to his gente in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus says here that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit is as much a central part of this story as is Jesus. So when his people reject Jesus, what they're also doing is rejecting the presence and the activity of the Spirit and what the Spirit wants to do in and through Jesus. Luke makes it clear that Jesus needed the Spirit. God is one, made up of three distinct persons. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Trinity works in equal partnership, and there is no hierarchy. There is no isolation, no independence. And Jesus knew that he needed the Spirit if he was to fulfill what he was meant to do. He wasn't a lone wolf. Instead, he said, I do what I see the Father doing. And he often withdrew to pray, to commune with God. And so how much more do we, frail, limited, cube-building humans, need the Spirit? If we think we can do faith and Christianity on our own, then we've got the whole thing wrong. Because the essence of Christianity is that you and I couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't save ourselves. Contrary to what the Enlightenment has put in our minds, which believes that throughout time and the, the progress and gaining of knowledge that we will eventually surpass, we will progress past our problems. But the gospel says something different. The gospel says that we've got a condition that can't be cured from the inside. We need somebody who is on the outside. We need somebody who can absolve our brokenness into himself and take care of it once and for all. And this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. And he says to you and I that you can't do it on your own. He says, I will send my spirit and my spirit will go ahead of you and you will and will empower you to be my witnesses, which in other words, I will fit you into what I am doing. It doesn't mean you will become less of yourself. When we trust him to fit us into his story, we're actually becoming more of ourselves. And I'm glad that Jesus doesn't leave us. He promises that through the Spirit, he will comfort and strengthen us. And I'm glad the Spirit accompanies us even when we're not aware of it, even when we can't see it. Because when I look back at my own life, I can see that truly God is, is good on his word, that he is true to his promises, 
And all I, all I have left to say is, man, praise God. Praise God that he didn't leave my dad when the police raided the crack house that he was in in Boyle Heights. Praise God that he comforted my mom when she was battling breast cancer. Praise God that he made his presence so known to me in the middle of my parents' divorce during my first year at Bible college. Thank God that he was patient with us when we were in between churches. I thank God that he provided numerous scholarships in my journey through seminary. And I praise God that he's kept our church alive and thriving and that we're seeing the activity of the kingdom here in this place. The Spirit is the one who accompanies us. And so let us get with his program. Let us allow him to fit us into the story that he is unfolding. It is one of redemption. It is one of renewal. And you and I can play a part. One thing we always say here at Bread is everyone can play. It's not about just a, a select few up at the front, but it, it is about everyone. We all get to do this together. It is riskier, but it is more fun. And it is also more impactful. And so, this pa- if this passage is about Jesus' hint there rejecting the Spirit, then let us do the opposite. Let us be people so open to the Spirit, so welcoming and accepting of what the Spirit wants to do. Let us be people of the Spirit. Because what Luke in Acts does is he, the the author makes known that the new community that Jesus is forming is one of people filled with the Spirit. That his new gente, his new people, are those who are open to the Spirit. And this is who we are. We are his gente, people of the Spirit. And so in a moment, we're going to respond to the Spirit. But some of us, maybe we've been Christians a long time and we know of the Spirit. Others of us, this may be our very first time about hearing about the Spirit, and there could maybe be a few of us who are resistant to the Spirit, but the truth is you and I are all meant to be filled with the Spirit, and we leak His presence. We disobey, we doubt, we miss the mark, and yet He calls us again and again to receive because only then can we be who we're meant to be. And so let us reject, let us not reject his spirit any longer. Let us not quench his presence any longer. Let us surrender to the renewal that the spirit wants to bring. Let us leave behind our cubes, our designs, and allow God to fit us into what he's doing. Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled there's a sense of todayness about this passage. And so let us not wait. Let us come, be filled, and allow him to fit us again. Amen. We are going to sing a song. But during this time, I, I'd like to...
invite us to consider where we've made cubes, where we've made designs that we've tried to cram Jesus in. And let us bring those things before him and leave it at his feet. And as we do this, some of us will want to worship. Some of us will want to come up to get prayer. Some of us will um, need, well, some of us will want to just show gratitude, whatever it may be. Let us be listening for what the Spirit wants to do. And then, as always, um, we will pray for people at the front.